0: Listening to the Bellator Christie podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristi.com. Now join your host Brian Chilton as we enter the arena of ideas, taking of the sword of Christian theology and the shield of classic apologetics. This, uh, while taking truth into the arena of ideas. This is the Bellator Christi podcast, and this is your host uh, Brian Chilton. Our co-host Curtis Evelo couldn't be with us today because of some scheduling conflicts, uh, but we uh, welcome with us today a special guest, and that is Mister Tim Stratton, almost Doctor Stratton. Uh, he's he's in his dissertation phase for his PhD at Northwestern, I believe uh, that's that's right. And so uh, Tim is also the founder of uh, uh, Free Thinking Ministries and writes a lot on the issue of Molinism and in addition to that, he also taught for the illustrious William Lane Craig. He taught one of the defenders' classes. So, man, we do the uh, the bow to you, Mister Tim. <laughs> oh,
1: yeah, whatever. Um, yeah, that was an honor uh, having the opportunity to uh, substitute uh, for Doctor Craig. Get you know, literally getting to fill the shoes of my hero for for a day. <laughs> so that was pretty cool. Um, but actually, just one correction: It's not Northwestern where I'm uh, pursuing my PhD. It's Northwest University.
0: Which Northwest. Is actually in South
1: Africa. Yeah. Oh wow.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's actually a it's a secular university now, but it's uh, they they have a theology department, and their theology department is staunchly reformed, and so I my, my dissertation is uh, regarding a an area that most Reformed folks think is incompatible with Reformed theology, and I argue otherwise. So it's quite the challenge.
0: Wow, I tell you what, that sounds that sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and the issue that you're defending is is going to be the topic of our conversation today, uh, which is, in fact, Molinism. Uh, so before we get into that, Tim, would you mind taking a few moments and uh, uh, telling our listeners about
1: how you came to faith in Christ? You bet. Uh, One of my first memories uh, was my great-grandpa dying. Uh, So I was uh, almost four years old. It was uh, just my my birthday's in June, I think. It was probably May of uh, my third year. (laughs) Um, And so still being three years old, right before my birthday, my great-grandpa died. I didn't even know what death was. Uh, It didn't make sense to me. And my mom... Uh, took me aside. She started telling me about where my great-grandpa was now and that he wasn't here anymore. And I had this, uh, as a a little boy, I had these toys called Weeble Wobbles. Do you remember those? I
0: remember those, yeah.
1: (laughs) They're like these egg-shaped toys with faces painted on them and all these (laughs) different characters. And there was uh, this one Weeble Wobble, and it has this clear plastic coating around it. And somehow that got cracked, and so this clear plastic coating could be you could slide it on and off the egg-shaped uh, figure. And my mom took that. She was, she was so creative. And she says, you have a soul. You're a soul created in the image of God, basically. <laughs> this person like Amir. And, the, and she said, now, your your grandpa, your great-grandpa's died, but his, his body's dead, but his soul. She slid that off the figure. But your soul, or his soul now, is with Jesus in heaven. And she put it up on this high shelf. That I couldn't see up on top of him. She goes, It's beautiful up there, it's perfect. There's no pain or suffering. Everything's beautiful. And and someday, if you ask Jesus into your heart, you can be there with him too. And she explained a little more of the gospel to me in a in a way that a three or three or four-year-old could understand. And I remember this. I remember praying at the kitchen table and asking Jesus to live in my heart. Did I have a a perfect theology back then that I really understand what I was doing. No, but, but, but God honored that. And he's been active in my life ever since. Um, And really, as I grew, I'd say I was in my early twenties, probably around 21 years old when I stopped taking my Christianity and my faith for granted. And I truly devoted my life to Christ 24 seven that, you know, I remember hearing a song from, DC talk called Jesus Freak, I went to this concert, they, they were performing that song, and it hit me like a ton of bricks, that these guys didn't care what anybody thought, you know, before that, I'd, I'd live a good Christian life around my Christian friends, but around my non-Christian friends, uh, it wasn't so easy to tell, yeah, I, I was a no, was I completely sold out, no, but man, God, God used uh, the Jesus Freak song to convict me, and I remember uh, at that concert saying, okay, things are different now, I'm devoting my life to you. Uh and I felt after that like I was supposed to go into ministry. Um, so anyway, that led me to what I'm doing today. I couldn't <laughs> kind of have planned it out, that's for sure.
0: <laughs> yeah, I remember that song by D C talk. It was a yeah. wonderful, wonderful song. I really love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, let's go ahead and jump into our topic today. First of all, uh, can you explain to our listeners, uh, what is Molinism? I remember when I first uh, came on board uh, at Westfield Baptist Church, uh, they asked me certain theological questions where I stood, and they asked me, are you Calvinist or Arminian?" And I said, I'm a Molinist. And they looked at me yeah, there you
1: go. They (laughs) said, what?
0: (laughs) So they brought up a whole flurry of other questions, like, what in the world is this?
1: Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs)
0: <laughs> so how how would you explain Molinism?
1: Yeah, uh, well, okay, let me give you the long version first. Uh, so I, I like to say that Molinism is basically a model explaining how God can exhaustively predestine all things and be completely sovereign over all things and simultaneously show how humans can be free and responsible for some things. So at first glance, it seems kind of, you know, maybe logically contradictory to affirm that God is sovereign over all things and that humans are responsible for some things. I mean, just listen to that. God is sovereign over all things, and humans are responsible for some things. That (laughs) some and the all seem to be at odds with each other. But be that as it may, it seems that these two truths are found in Scripture, that God does predestine all things and that he is sovereign over all things, even before the foundations of the world. Yet, yet i i contend the bible clearly teaches that we're free that we have this libertarian freedom at least occasionally um but you know i think this problem was solved by a 16th century theologian from spain named luis de molina now molinism which is derived from molina's last name right molina molinism Uh, but molinism grounds god's sovereignty not only in his omnipotence, as many Calvinists solely focus, right, Molinism wants to consider uh, all of God's omni-attributes, right? God is a maximally great being, so when we we try to answer these questions, we've got to consider all of his omni-attributes at once, right? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, Molinism gra- grounds God's sovereignty not only in his omnipotence, but also considers God's omniscience. So Molina pointed out that since God is all-powerful, right, he's omnipotent, then God has options, right? He's got the ability to create many different possible worlds or possible scenarios or circumstances, right? Um, this, these include possible worlds with creatures who God does not always causally determined. so uh, that is to say that God has the power to create beings who possess libertarian free will. And God also had the power uh, not to create any world at all. He didn't have to create anything. However, if God was powerful enough to create different worlds, since he is also all-knowing, he's omniscient, then God would perfectly know all that would happen in each of these potential worlds that are within God's power to create. If God chose to create them (laughs) right gets a little a little deep here but uh, this is even the case of God never brought these worlds into existence think about that God still knows what would have happened if he created any of these worlds within his power to bring into actual existence so this full view of God's omniscience includes what is referred to as middle knowledge and this raises a good question. I'm glad you asked, Brian. <laughs> yeah, it's that's that's on the list, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, what is this kind of knowledge in the middle of, right? Well, middle knowledge is between God's natural knowledge and his free knowledge. Now, most Christians have never heard of these terms before. Uh, but God's natural knowledge sim- simply refers to everything that he knows that he could do or anything that all that he could actualize, right? All potential situations within God's power to make actual, right? That's uh, God's natural knowledge is what theologians call natural knowledge. But we can also just call this his could knowledge. Mm -hmm. This means God knows everything that he could do. Now, middle knowledge is different. Middle knowledge refers to the fact that God knows everything that would happen if he were to create certain worlds within his power to actualize, even if he never does. So think about that. Middle knowledge refers to everything that God knows would happen based off of everything that he could do or that he could create.
0: So he sees all the potentialities, the the, the ways that things would
1: would happen under certain circumstances. Right. So he knows all the circumstances he could make actual, that he could create, and then he knows all that would happen if he did it. So, God's—and then finally, you've got God's free knowledge, which simply means God knows everything that will actually happen in the world he's chosen to create. So, so in a nutshell, if God is always omniscient, then God perfectly knows all that could happen and all that will happen, and he knows all that would have happened in different situations he could have created. That is to say that God knows all that— that could, would, and will happen, and middle knowledge brings the would. So are you tracking with me? Does that make yeah, sense? I, mean, I, know, it, it, I know you I, understand.
0: I think it amplifies the omniscient knowledge of God by looking at it this way because not only would you would you say that he knows what will happen, but he knows what could have happened and would have happened given certain circumstances. Yeah. So I think if you really think about it that way, then, then, then it really impacts how we view sovereignty in that regard. Amen
1: to that. That's right. So so there
0: there are these different theological concepts out there, and you've defended a concept that you've called uh, mere Molinism. Uh, What what, what do you call mere Molinism? And and is this called mere Christianity, the very fundamentals uh, that that constitute what Molinism is?
1: That's exactly right. You know, I like to say that, uh, well, I'm not the one that came up with this, but mere Christianity basically rests on the truth of one statement so if there's one statement that is true then some flavor of christianity has got to be true and that's this god raised jesus from the dead if that one sentence is true that one proposition is true then some flavor of christianity has got to be true now we can we can argue over other issues about christianity we can argue about uh The triune nature of God, or the spiritual gifts, or (laughs) baptism, and all that kind of stuff. We can argue about Calvinism and Molinism. Flavor of Christianity has got to be true if it's true that God raised Jesus from the dead. Mm -hmm. Um, And, of course, I'm going to affirm that it's very important to argue for more than that. But at the very least, you're not a Christian if you don't affirm that God exists and that God raised Jesus from the dead. So that one statement uh, boils down to two uh, uh, sta- uh, statements that have to be true—that God exists and that the historical re- or that the resurrection was historical—and I know you have a lot to say on that topic. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and it was historical. Wasn't it, it was historical. Uh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but so, so mere Molinism—I I take the same approach there uh, as uh, like C.S. Lewis has done with mere Christianity. So mere Molinism focuses on the bare essentials. And Molinism can mean different things to different people, and it all depends on how one applies or does not apply these bare essentials to these different topics. So, no Molinist uh, is worthy of the name Molinist (laughs) if they don't affirm two things. And that's, one, logically prior to God's decision to create the world, God knew everything Mm -hmm. that would happen in any possible scenario he could create. Now, if that's true, that entails God's middle knowledge. And the second key ingredient is this. Two, as beings created in the image of God, humans, like God, possess libertarian freedom. Now, libertarian freedom, I should define that. There's several different definitions that philosophers philosophers use to define libertarian freedom. I like to focus on two of them. One is... if uh, if an agent is uncaused, is ever uncaused, or not causally determined, then that agent possesses libertarian freedom. It's basically, do they have self-control? Are they in control of themselves, or is something else controlling the the, the thing they call I, right? Right. Um, or or this, is something else controlling me, or do I have self-control? If I've got genuine self-control and somebody else or something else, isn't controlling me, isn't controlling my thoughts or my actions, at least sometimes, then at least sometimes I've got libertarian freedom. Mm-hmm. I like to argue uh, also for a different definition, and that's this. Li- libertarian freedom is simply the ability to choose between a range of of alternative options pillars of mere molinism or the two essential ingredients that i like to refer to them as is one logically prior to god's decision to create the world god knew everything that would happen in any possible scenario he could create and two as beings created in the image of god humans like god possessed libertarian freedom now one can move beyond mere molinism and apply these two essentials to soteriological issues which is not necessary Right? This is something that is open uh, to discussion and open for debate. But if one applies mere Molinism to salvation-related issues, uh, you can become a soteriological Molinist if you affirm a third ingredient, and that's this. Third ingredient, God is a maximally great being who loves and desires the best for all people. I contend that if you affirm all three of those, you'll get soteriological Molinism. But I also contend that you can be a Calvinist or anybody else, and reject three, and still affirm one and two, and those two things don't contradict the five points of Calvinism. So you can be a five-point Calvinist and a mere Molinist simultaneously.
0: You can be um, a Calvinist and a Molinist?
1: You can. Now, <laughs> many Calvinists don't realize that and just reject to all things Molinism, but I think if you press them uh, hard enough, they wind up uh, really having to affirm at least, mere Molinism. So, yeah, but a lot of this hinges on middle knowledge. And so you were really you human were, freedom and middle knowledge. Yeah, weren't you at one time a Calvinist yourself, and then you, and then oh. you affirmed Molinism? Yeah, hardcore. Uh, I was, uh, a, I guess, I was a staunch Calvinist. Um, that I understand all things Calvinism? Uh, Probably not. Did I understand a whole bunch of it? Yes. Did I understand the five points? Yes. I studied the five points. I understood what TULIP entailed. I understood what total depravity meant. I understood what uh, irresistible grace meant. You know I mean? I understood the five points of Calvinism, and I wasn't just a five-point Calvinist, though. I believed that exhaustive divine determinism was true. Mm -hmm. So not just the the five points of uh, TULIP, I affirmed even further, I said, God causally determines not just salvation issues. Causally determines some people to go to heaven and some people to go to hell. But I also said, man, if I drop my pencil, well, God actually caused me to do that. I mean, I, I would affirm ex- exhaustive divine determinism, and that's not really a strong man. I mean, you look at some of the um, leading Calvinist philosophers and theologians out there today, they will affirm the same thing. Guillaume mignon in his uh, recent book, um, I think it's called uh, Excusing Sinners and Blaming God. And I interact with his book uh, quite a bit in my dissertation. Uh, that's his view, that all things are causally determined ultimately by God. And also, uh, uh, Matthew J. Hart, in his uh, recent contribution on this topic, he affirms the same thing and says that Paul Helm would affirm the same thing. So uh, these are some of the leading Calvinists who affirm this exhaustive divine determinism. Well, uh, if exhaustive divine determinism is true, then God has caused me to stop being a Calvinist and caused me to be a Molinist. <laughs> but I don't think exhaustive divine determinism is true. So.
0: To, to, for me, I just see all kinds of problems with with that extremity of, of the, well. I, I don't even know that I would call it Calvinism. I think I'd call it more determinism that, that right. everything so is, is determined.
1: Right now, so the point is, is you you can be a Calvinist and not be a determinist, or an exhaustive divine determinist, but uh, many, if not most, Calvinists today will affirm determinism or this exhaustive divine determinism. Even so, there you go.
0: Well, as we're talking about uh, Molinism and middle knowledge, uh, th- there are some objectors out there who, who are not necessarily even Calvinistic. A uh, th- uh, good friend of mine, Jason Klein, he, he falls more in the Thomistic camp. And quite honestly, I share a lot in co- common with Thomism on, on several different genres. I just happen to affirm middle knowledge. <laughs> (laughs) and uh, things of that nature. But um, Jason asked a question. He's part of our Bellator Christi team. Uh, He asked the question, does the concept of middle knowledge commit the
1: category fallacy? How would you respond to that? Uh, Not at all. Um, There's no categorical uh, categorical fallacy here. Um, And it's quite simple, actually. Uh, God is omnipotent, and thus by definition has many options. And since God is also omniscient, He knows all that he could do or all that he could actualize. Now, God's middle knowledge is God's perfect knowledge of what would happen if he created any of the worlds available for him to actualize. So could and would are philosophically two different things. By definition, these are two different categories. And I think, uh, you know, when I talk to Thomas, uh, typically, um, you know, something I run by them usually makes sense and gets us back on the same page. I've even talked to some SES professors on this topic. Uh, One of them, um, I won't mention him by name uh, right now, but, you know, he and I were debating uh, Molinism and Thomism, and I asked him a few questions and and he's like, Oh, well, if that's all you mean by that, then I have no problem affirming middle knowledge. (laughs) (laughs) And and, uh, so we're talking about maybe uh, collaborating on something, but uh, one way I like to uh, start is, that, you know, I start with the Kalam cosmological argument. So, um, do you think Jason likes the Kalam argument? Would he affirm the Kalam or not?
0: Yeah, I, I would. I would think that he would. Okay. I would think that he would. So I don't want to put words in his mouth. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Here. I don't know for sure, but yeah, just, he if, he so, may get me later if I if right, I if right, I start right. speaking for him. I mean,
1: him. most most people love the Kalam. You know, most Christians, right? And so, especially if you're a Christian apologist, it's like the the MVP of apologetic arguments, maybe, for for a lot of people. Um, So uh, the Kalam, I think, can help us out here. So consider the fact that the rational inferences provided by the Kalam show that God exists in a static state of aseity in which the universe, time and space, did not exist. That is to say, logically, prior to the beginning of the existence of the universe, God exists, and then, to use temporal language, God creates the universe, so um, now I don't know if this is how all Thomas would uh, answer, but the ones that I have talked to typically will say, "Yeah, there was a state in which the universe did not exist." They'll say that the universe is not uh, eternal without beginning. They'll say it's the, um, that it had a beginning. Um, so considering the static state of aseity, uh, I mean that that means that God exists, sans the universe. And then the universe came into existence. So let's just think about the static state of a deity, And the question is raised, is God maximally great in this state? I don't know if any Calvinist, I don't know of any Thomist, um, who would say, no, God's not maximally great. He doesn't become maximally great. He's always maximally great. And so I say, okay, well, question one. Let's take a quiz here. I got three questions for you. Question one. Is it true that God exists in a state of aseity logically prior to creating the universe and thus without the universe? They'll say yes. Question two, in this state of aseity, is God omnipotent? If so, does he possess the power to create creatures with libertarian freedom, even if he never does create them? Now, Thomas, the Calvinists might say no. Most of them actually say yes. They just say, no, God never created free creatures, but he could have. Thomas, I got 25 pages in my dissertation regarding Aquinas <laughs> and, and, and how Aquinas would argue for libertarian freedom. Uh, yeah, I, yeah,
0: and I've come across several passages uh, of Aquinas' writings where he talks about uh, libertarian freedom. So I'm kind of wondering since this, since this, since Milena came after Thomas, if Thomas
1: himself wouldn't affirm middle knowledge. Well, man, that's right. You get these. You get all these guys in the same room. To I mean, I bet they're all up in heaven right now, agreeing with each other. <laughs> I but think I, you're right. if we, we could have got them all in the same room, but I'll tell you what, I love theological disagreements behind the doors of the church when it's done politely. Polite, Because Absolutely. this is what iron sharp—this is iron sharpening. Amen. Right? We're we're all uh, focused on truth. We want the truth and nothing but the truth. And I, I actually, I mean, sometimes I... When I'm reading scripture, I'm like, Paul, you should have been a little more clear right here. I, I think I know what you're saying, but man, could you just have clarified? Um, or, and, and a few maybe,
0: more details or maybe a footnote here to kind of let us know right, what you mean. Right.
1: And, and then I'll read Calvin and Luther, and I'm like, well, yeah, you guys are speaking outside of both sides of your mouth, it seems, but you have clarified this. Um, and then and then I'm like, wow, I'm actually happy that there is this – that it's not so crystal clear right right now because that gives you and i something to work on um, absolutely I, I find so much joy in trying to connect these logical dots these theological dots logically you know so yeah my point is the, the second question is in the state of aseity is god omnipotent and if so does he possess the power to create uh, ages with libertarian freedom now the the uh the thomas should answer yes because i've got 25 pages in my dissertation showing that thomas aquinas believes that god created Humans with the ability to freely think and freely act in the libertarian sense.
0: Didn't he say something no. along the lines that if if human beings weren't free, then the law makes no sense.
1: Um, I think he, I think so. And that's the Chilton,
0: that's the Chilton paraphrase version of that. But... Yeah,
1: right, right, right. <laughs> I think we, I think he would affirm that. Um, then the third question I've got. All right, let, let me remind our listeners. Question one is: Is it true in the state of a city? That God exists apart from the universe, um, or is it is, is it true that God exists in a state of aseity without the universe before creating the universe? Uh, almost everybody's going to say yes. Question two, in the state of aseity is God omnipotent, and if so, can God create a being with libertarian freedom? Uh, Calvinists will say yes, he does or have that ability, but he never did. Um, and Thomas, if they're followers of Thomas Aquinas, they should say Not only does God have that ability, but he did. Okay, question three. In this state of aseity, is God omniscient? If so, does he possess the knowledge of how these libertarian free creatures within his power to create, and even if he never does create them, would freely think or act? Now, this Thomas professor that I talked to said, of course, God's got that knowledge. And I said, that's simply what we mean by middle knowledge. <laughs> exactly. You know, so so many people think, well, we're you know, these are different parts of God. No. God's got the ability to create a free creature and God, since he's omniscient, knows how that free creature would freely choose if he creates them. You can call that Middle knowledge, you can call it schmittle knowledge. I don't care what you call it, right? But when you start defining these terms, people start to see, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, God's got that. They might say, well, we don't need to put that in the category of middle knowledge. They might try to stuff it somewhere else.
0: Maybe call it midway knowledge.
1: (laughs) Who cares where you put it? That's what we mean by middle knowledge, God's knowledge of what would happen if, okay? So a lot of people, for some strange reason, don't like the term middle knowledge, but they wind up affirming the definition while denying the name. Mm. That's fine. I just say a rose by any other name smells just as sweet. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I think that, that, you know, I call that the cosmological quiz after uh, consider- considering the Kalam cosmological argument and saying, all right, this gets God, this brings us back to the cause of the universe, the creator of the universe, God, uh, existing apart from the universe, and then considering his omni attributes, namely his omnipotence and omniscience, you ultimately are going to get uh, some flavor of Molinism. <laughs> You're going to get God's at least God's middle knowledge.
0: Amen. Amen. Yeah. So, so what are some of the? You know, so th- this is this is one objection. What are some of the main objections objections that you have encountered against Molinism, and how and how would you how do you respond to those?
1: Well. Since I'm a Bolinist, I think every objection I've heard fails. Right. right. Um, some are better than others. Some have made me uh, really take one or two steps back and really think hard about it. But I like to consider myself as uh, an analytic theologian, right? <laughs> I'm a systematic theologian. That's what my degree is in. Um, and I really try hard to analyze everything regarding these and from the words states of affairs and what that entails um and what these objections entail and to this day there's none that i think pass but the one that and i'll tell you i mean just even recently i listened to a podcast that i'll be uh, responding to on my podcast soon uh, with uh, many objections that were lodged against Molinism. most of them are horrible and just showed that they really didn't understand what they were objecting to. But there was a couple that I'm like, okay, uh, that gives me something to work on, and I thought about it for a few minutes and solved the problem. Um, But, uh, yeah, like I said, some objections are worse than others, uh, and some are better than others, and some have gotten a lot more press than others. And so I think the one that, you know, I'll say the bad objection gets the majority of the press in philosophical and theological circles— is called The Grounding Objection. Now, Kirk, Kirk McGregor, uh, he was recently on my podcast, on the Free Thinking Podcast, um, just a couple weeks ago, was, uh, episode 100. And on that, we were talking about The Grounding Objection. And in my opinion, Kirk McGregor is, uh, he might be the leading authority on uh, Molinism today. Uh, but he calls The Grounding Objection worthless in his own words. Wow. <laughs> yeah, but nonetheless... <laughs> anti-Molinists seem to pin all their hopes on this grounding objection. In fact, you know, I'm thinking of James White right now. I I responded to, he was on a show talking about why Molinism is false. I was then invited to be on the same show a couple weeks later. I interacted with all of his uh, quotes, all the pertinent ones anyway, to show that his objections didn't have any teeth in their bite Um, and that he just doesn't understand what he's objecting to. But really... You know, he, he fancies himself as a biblical exegete. His, his, real when you boil it down, it's not, he doesn't argue against Molinism biblically. He, he leaves his field, his field, to bring in a philosophical objection, which is the grounding objection. And I don't even think he, well, I'll, <laughs> I, I've got some more about Calvinists who use <laughs> the uh, grounding objection here soon, but let me just talk about the, the grounding objection. So, the one who affirms the granting objection asserts that it's impossible for God's knowledge of CCFs, which I mean uh, the counterfactuals of creaturely freedom. So I'll say CCFs a lot. When I do that, that means counterfactuals of creaturely freedom. So they assert that it's impossible for God's knowledge of CCFs to be explanatorily uh, prior to God's creative decree. Because they say... if. CCFs are independent of God's will or creative decree, then there would be nothing to ground CCFs. And that is to say, that there would be nothing in actual existence that would provide what's called a truth maker for these CCFs. So, first thing I want to say is even though I think this objection fails, there are many Christians who do not have lo- logical access to this argument. Mm. And I discuss this on my website and in my dissertation. Um, and I'll be unpacking this more soon and in, uh, in probably podcasts and YouTube videos and things. But uh, first of all, for starters, if you're an apologist out there who doesn't like Molinism, but you like the fine tuning argument that Dr. Craig, for example, gives, uh, then you cannot consistently appeal to the grounding objection. Right, so the fine-tuning argument is an argument uh, for intelligent design of the universe, and thus that God. And it follows that God is the intelligent designer, right? Mm-hmm. But if one thinks the fine-tuning argument is good, but they want to object to Molinism based on the grounding objection, then they have to either drop the fine-tuning argument, or they have to drop their objection against Molinism. So pick your poison, you can't have them both, and be logically consistent.
0: Um, so basically by throwing out middle knowledge, you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so you're basically throwing not only Molinism out, you're throwing out many apologetic
1: arguments that are used. Uh, yeah, many of them, and, and it, in this case, the fine-tuning argument, because you know I've argued, this is in my dissertation, the fine-tuning argument assumes that God possesses middle knowledge logically prior to creation, and so nothing else actually exists, right? It's only God, right? We already talked about it with the Kalam. It gets you back to the static state of aseity. Nothing else actually exa- exists, yet God still knows all that he could, all the different manners in which he could fine-tune the initial conditions of the Big Bang and what that would eventually lead to. That is middle knowledge. Mm. Um, so so the the apologist who wants to... Look, okay, here's my point. If you are an apologist who likes the fine-tuning argument for God's existence, then you cannot reject Molinism based on the granting objection. Moreover, the Calvinist I've argued, cannot consistently appeal to the granting objection to rationally argue against Molinism without inadvertently affirming open theism. It'll blow up in their oh, face. Oh, wow, the, I hadn't thought about the, that. Oh, man, the last thing they want to do. They might hate Molinism, but Calvinists despise open theism, right? I, I've, I, I, most Calvinists I talk to would much rather affirm Molinism than open theism. In fact, most Calvinists will say open theism isn't even on the table to consider. It's a heretical view. And most Calvinist theologians will say, even though we think Molinism's wrong, you're still not heretics, you're still in the club right <laughs> well that's so not so. I, yeah yeah it is <laughs> but i like to show them then like james white if you as a calvinist say that you've rationally affirmed that calvinism is true and that molinism is false and that you you can rationally argue for that then open theism must be true. Now I've got I've got a lot. I don't know how much time we have if you want me to spend on this. I could I could spend a whole lot of time talking about this and give you an argument. Uh, well, I, I tell but, you what,
0: we'll, we'll, let's let's take about four more minutes on this, and then we have a couple more questions from from uh, the Bellator Christie team. We'll get we'll get uh, get to those. But yeah, let's because I think this is a very important topic. Uh, let's spend about four more minutes on this, and then we'll look at the two other questions.
1: Okay. Um, all right. So think about this: if an, well, let me see. How do I don't want to phrase this? Uh, okay. If an omnipotent God who has the power to create free creatures cannot know how free creatures would freely choose if He were to actualize them, then we seem to be left with only two options: either one, exhaustive divine determinism, or two, open theism. Because you're saying God, um, well, if God does not know how creatures would freely choose if He were to actualize them. Then, if that's true, then creatures are not free in a libertarian sense ever, or it means that we, are, that we are free in a libertarian sense, but God simply does not know what we would freely choose if he were to actualize creatures with libertarian freedom. So that is to say that if God does not possess the knowledge of how free creatures would freely choose, if he were to create them, then we either lose the libertarian freedom of humans and get exhaustive divine determinism, or we lose God's omniscience. Is omniscient knowledge, and we get open theism. So, you know, it's got to be one of the two. So the question is raised between the two. What's the inference to the best explanation? But wait! <laughs> Inferring the best explanation and engaging in the process of rationality is impossible on divine determinism. And I've argued this in depth and detail in my master's thesis and my doctoral dissertation in academic journal articles and all over my website. And the eminent philosopher of mind, John Searle, sums it up perfectly. He says, actions are rationally accessible if and only if the actions are free. The reason for this connection is this. Rationality must be able to make a difference. Rationality is possible only when there is a genuine choice between various rational and irrational courses of action. If the act is completely determined, then rationality can make no difference. It doesn't even come into play, end quote. That's in his book, Rationality and Action. Now, Greg Kochel, who's a Calvinist of all people, a five-point Calvinist, he agrees, and he, is, he actually uh, argues against this exhaustive divine determinism while affirming the five points of Tulip. Uh, I've got a big uh, block quote I could read to you from him. I'll just say, check out his book, Tactics. It's in there. Didn't um, you, Oh, so is it in the new Tactics book, this, this quote? I do have the new Tactics book. I haven't looked it up in there, but I, I know it's in the old Tactics book, so it stands for reason, uh, okay. no pun intended, uh, that, <laughs> that it's uh, in the new book as well. The new book is expanded. But I've talked to Greg about this on probably three different occasions, and I do know that Greg affirms this view, that if we are ex- exhaustively determined, by physics and chemistry, or God, then we are not rational creatures. So, if one affirms that they have rationally concluded that Calvinism is true, then and there's, but they're saying that uh, the grounding objection passes. Well, you're ultimately going to be left with open theism. I've got an argument here. It goes like this. One, premise one. Hey, hey Tim, ground, Tim before, yeah.
0: before you go in there, just just to clarify for our listeners, open theism is is a doctrine that holds that God doesn't know any future events, that uh, basically that he's not omniscient in regards right. to time. So just to give that little right. clarifying note. Yeah,
1: yeah, that, that's good, yeah. And, and uh, I think we can make a, and I know Calvinists will agree with me, we can make a strong case biblically against that. Um, and I think we can make a case uh, philosophically against that, too. But here's my case, my argument, uh, showing why Calvinists can't appeal to the granting objection. Premise one, if the granting objection passes, then God does not possess knowledge of counterfactuals of creaturely freedom logically prior to, to his creative decree, and thus Molinism is false. Two, if God does not possess knowledge of CCFs logically prior to his creative decree, then either exhaustive divine determinism is true, or open theism is true. Three, if exhaustive divine determinism is true, then one is not free to engage in the process of rationality to infer and affirm the best explanation. Right? Rationally inferred knowledge is impossible. Four, therefore, if one affirms that one has rationally inferred that exhaustive divine determinism is the best explanation, or probably true, then they believe that the grounding objection passes, or and they agree, And believe that the granting objection passes then exhaustive divine determinism is false conclusion five therefore if one thinks the granting objection passes and shows that Molinism is false then open theism is the only live option left to rationally affirm so bottom line uh, you know here's the here's a little equation for you theism plus the granting objection plus rationality equals open theism Mm. so what does the Calvinist want to get rid of pick your poison Uh, you, You don't want open theism, so now you've got theism, the grounding objection, or rationality to get rid of. Do you want to get rid of rationality? No, because you're saying that you've rationally inferred and you're rationally affirming and rationally arguing that Molinism is false because of the grounding objection. Then you're left so you with you a self
0: defeater get- if you, if you go that route. Yeah,
1: that's right. That's right. They can't get rid of theism because by definition, Calvinists believe in theism, right? They believe that God exists. So all that's left is the grounding objection to get rid of. You gotta get rid of the grounding objection. Brother, I if think you want- just nailed it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's uh I I mean it's uh, it's crazy to me how many Calvinists appeal to the grounding objection, and they don't realize what they're doing. Uh, they're, they're opening the door to their greatest nightmare by doing so. Now, I've, I've spent a lot of time on this already, so maybe we need, need to get going. Yeah,
0: I, uh, I, was, but, I was going to say, I man, yeah. <laughs> I wish I'll we had more say, time on this one.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, let me just – I'll just point people uh, to other places here. I think the only people, the only uh, people that have access to the grounding objection against Molinism is open theists, and, and uh, Calvinists don't want to go there. Most Christians don't want to go there because it seems to be an unbiblical view. But for the sake of that conversation and for the sake of those arguments, I'll argue with open theists and show that I don't think their objection passes either for philosophical reasons. And you can find that on my website. You can find that in a journal article that I co-authored with Yaquivus Erasmus, a PhD philosopher from South Africa. That's in uh, Perichoresis 16.2. And uh, stay tuned for my dissertation. I unpack that more uh, there. So man, I can't um, wait to
0: see I can't wait to see that.
1: <laughs> also, in, in episode one hundred of the freethinking Podcast, I interview Kirk McGregor, and he discusses why he thinks the grounding objection is a worthless even when it's given by open theists. So i point people in that direction.
0: I tell you what, we, we've got just a few minutes left. Uh, l- let me hit a couple of these questions here. This question okay. comes from V.T. Clark. Uh, she's an up-and-coming apologist uh, yeah. down in the Houston, Texas area. Mm-hmm. Uh, she asked this question, for those who are interested in Molinism but not familiar with it, what books, articles, etc. would you suggest for people
1: to develop a basic understanding of Molinism? There's three got to start with. One is uh, The Only Wise God by William Lane Craig. Uh, the second is called uh, Luis de Molina, The Life and Theology of the Founder of Middle Knowledge by Kirk McGregor. And then finally, Salvation and Sovereignty by Kenneth Kiesley. excellent um, book. Excellent. Salvation book. and Sovereignty might be the best to start with, um, but they're all good. And, and really, Kirk's book, um, I think, is applicable for the beginner as well. Um, and really, not to... Not to toot my own horn, but I, I would recommend um, people if they're new to this and want to find out more. Uh, I think my website, uh, freethinkingministries.com is. I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to brag. I well, no, nah, hey, I think,
0: I'll, I'll brag on right. you. I mean that's that's a good that's a good resource right there.
1: Right, I, I think it's. I think it might be the best resource popularizing Molinism to lay people
0: absolutely um, and we
1: get into the deeper issues too but we definitely have our intro beginner articles
0: well, this final question comes from our uh, co-host, Cur- Curtis of Evolo. Uh, he is a rancher out in Montana. Uh, unfortunately, our schedules uh, wouldn't allow us uh, to all huh. all three get together. But yeah. uh, he asked the question, he said, How far back in history does the Molinist thought go? Is it something that originated with Molina, or can you trace it back uh, to a time prior to Molina?
1: Hmm. You know, that's a really good question, Uh yeah, I see why he's your co-host <laughs> by, the, by the way, Curtis uh, Hi, and it's too bad that uh, You weren't able to be here today um, Sorry about my schedule <laughs> Oh no, hey um, My yeah. schedule too, I mean it was just Pretty weird cool. <laughs> Well, I look forward to talking with him Sometime in the future but Absolutely let me think. You, know, uh, you know, actually I think I mean, Molinist thought Can be traced back to scripture Because I think it's a biblical view So I think uh, Christians over the centuries have often lived as though Molinism is true even before Molina was born uh, and even if they've never heard of Molinism since then I mean I'll tell you this all the time say for example if I'm if I'm speaking to a church oftentimes I get asked to speak at, at a church to to talk about um, Molinism and and uh, how to solve this problem of God being sovereign over all things and humans being free and responsible for some things and and, and, and also to show how this solves the problem of evil, things like that. Um, so when I explain Molinism to lay people or uh, beginners, you know, people sitting in the pews of the church, I hear this kind of thing all the time. They'll say, "Oh." I've always thought something like that was the case. I just <laughs> never knew how to explain it. <laughs> hey, <So. laughs> you
0: know what? That was exactly the same thing with me because whenever <laughs> I was just researching Calvinism and it was really through my MDiv program uh, as researching uh, Calvin and I apologize for my phone dinging. I had cut the notifications off and it's still dinging for some reason. <laughs> but uh, but but you know there was there was a sense that there was something in between the two and and I'm like the same people you'd mentioned, is Molinism, when I come across it, I was like, aha, there's a name to what I've been thinking all along.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. there was something between or in the middle of the two, and that was the middle knowledge view, right? Absolutely. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but to answer uh, Curtis's question, um, even though I think that the Molinist thought technically can be traced back to Scripture, and I'm saying the whole of Scripture, right? you can pick out some one or two Bible verses that Like, well, uh, this must be the the Calvinist view. No, I'm saying the whole of Scripture. I say that Molinism is the inference to the best interpretation of all the scriptural data. Um, So I think think the Molinist thought can go back uh, that far. But uh, I do think that Molina was the first to connect those theological dots logically and to really explain philosophically how to make sense of all these theological truths that the bible affirms so uh maybe there was somebody else that had you know was talking about what we now call middle knowledge but uh but molina was the first to uh i think label that uh, all that would happen if knowledge as middle knowledge because it's categorically different than could knowledge so um yeah, I could be wrong on that, but yeah, that's a good question. But I think it's—I think uh, Molina was the first one to make sense of it all. We've got
0: just a couple minutes left. Uh, yeah. Just, just kind of a, as a as a means to wrap up our, our podcast today. What What are some uh, generalized theological and philosophical problems that you see that can be resolved actually by this middle knowledge approach? Oh, that's what—that's one of my favorite things to talk about.
1: And fact, I would have to, I would
0: have to get give it towards the end of the podcast.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. Well, maybe you should bring me on in the future because I'd love hey, to spend Absolutely, whole I was getting ready to say um, we got to have you back on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the entire eighth chapter of my dissertation is focused on this question you just asked. So, yeah, that final chapter seeks to integrate all of the preceding chapters and demonstrate the practical applications of these important matters. It also seeks to illustrate that although the topic of Molinism can get rather academic in nature, as we've seen today. It's extremely relevant to the kingdom of God in the real world of everyday, of, you know, just the everyday life of the Christian. And so this, uh, this final chapter that I write about, um, you know, in my dissertation, it seeks to demonstrate uh, what I call the apologetic significance of Molinism by showing how the majority of the cumulative case for God's existence, you know, that we often hear... Uh, offered by Dr. William Lane Craig and others, and other arguments on top of that cumulative case, like the free-thinking argument that I like to offer. Right, All of these arguments for God's existence either assumes or it's strengthened by one or both of the key ingredients of mere Molinism. Mm. You know, like I said, from the fine-tuning argument uh, to solving all the problems of evil, whether it be moral evil or natural evil or what seems to be gratuitous evil, I even contend, that this middle knowledge viewer that Molinism can solve the problem of divine hiddenness. In fact, I've uh, just submitted a, a journal article on this topic. So stay tuned for that. Awesome, um, man. So Molinism, and if Molinism is true, it's, it, it enhances your apologetic uh, arsenal and it adds to it. I mean, it, it destroys as the apostle Paul would say in second Corinthians ten five, it destroys the greatest objection raised against the knowledge of God, the problem of evil, Uh, whether it be moral evil, natural evil, gratuitous evil, and even the problem of divine hiddenness, which I think is a form of the problem of evil, all of these problems of evil, I contend, are destroyed as Paul would say, um, if Molinism is true. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, the free-thinking argument and even the moral argument uh, assumes that human libertarian freedom, that, that we possess human libertarian freedom. So, I mean, you just got all these different arguments that are just enhanced by affirming the two ingredients of mere Molinism. The list goes on. Like, I think I've got, I don't know, 25 to 30 or at least a couple dozen arguments uh, that I talk about. I even show how—I mean, that Molinism helps us understand how Scripture can be written freely by men who are also inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Molinism, if it's true— can make sense of evolution, if it happens to be true or not. I'm not saying that evolution is true. Um, But Molinism can show how both uh, Genesis is true with a literal historical Adam and Eve and how evolution, uh, as taught in schools today, could both be true. Um, and again, I say so it's, that
0: it's kind of a heads we win, tails they lose scenario. That's right. That's right. We can still
1: <laughs> argue against evolution. I'm not saying evolution's true. I'm just saying who cares if it is? Exactly. It's, it's, it's not
0: horrible. the. It's not. Doesn't dismiss theism the way some some people That's think. it right. Does.
1: That's right. If somebody goes off to college and like, oh well, I took a biology class and I think evolution's true. Well, look, you can say, well, okay, here's my reasons for thinking uh, evolution's false. And they say, oh, I'm not convinced. Uh, I guess I have to stop being a Christian. Say no, wrong. Because look, Molinism shows how you don't have to reach that hasty conclusion. In fact, uh, I'll never forget. Well, I'll just say this: the the professor at the University of Nebraska at Kearney, here in my neck of the woods, who was uh, who is the evolutionary biologist there, um, and was an atheist, is now a Christian, um, and helps me with Rashi Christie and Reasonable Faith now because I offered her a model showing. How her views can be reconciled with Scripture in Genesis if Molinism true, wow. and so, she, and then a, a student from Duke University contacted me, a, a young woman there, who uh, was losing her faith because she went, she wanted to be a doctor, and so, a medical doctor, and so she majored in pre-med. And she came to think that evolution was true. And she didn't want to think it was true because she was always told that if evolution is true, Christianity is false. And she goes, but now I really believe that evolution is true. What am I going to do? And I say, look, um, you can go argue with other people to show you why evolution is false. I'm not going to do that right now. I'm just – that's not my field. I'm just going to show you why you don't have to lose your faith even if you think evolution's true. And I gave her a model, and she's in ministry today. Um, wow. so, so there's just some apologetic – Benefit this, you know, and Molinism also shows how prayer makes sense and makes a difference in a world sovereignly planned by God. So yeah, there's just so much. Benefit to affirming Molinism.
0: Well, brother, I'm afraid we're going to have to end right there because our time has went right out. <laughs> cool, cool, but we cool. have got to get you back on Tim Stratton, uh, the Free Thinking Ministries. Go check him out. I think he's going to. He's on a speaking tour, I believe, going uh, across the nation now. <laughs> and so, uh, so be be sure to check out his material. And so, Tim, again, thank you for being with us here today, brother. And we can't wait to have you back on.
1: Well, I sure appreciate you, Brian, and I follow what you guys are doing. Keep up the great work for God's glory. Thank you, sir.
0: For Tim Stratton, this is Brian Chilton. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christi Podcast and bellatorchristi.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Christie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. It's my privilege to announce to you that the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is now available on Kindle. So you can get the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics in all formats now. It's available on Kindle, as well as paperback, hardcover, and you can also find it on the Nook at barnesandnoble.com. So please go and order your copy today and share it, or maybe you'd like to share it with a friend. Whatever the case may be, help us as we get the word out and let people know that we have a faith worth believing in.